Welcome to the Decipher Podcast. I'm really happy today to have Kelly Shortridge from Capsule 8 as my guest. How are you today, Kelly? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for taking some time uh, to do this today. Um, I, you recently posted a piece, we're recording this, I think the day that you, you posted it, about um, a kind of a, I don't know if thought, thought experiment is the right uh, phrase or theory or idea that you had. Um, kind of about ransomware and how we should treat the whole concept of ransomware attacks. And I don't want to step on the theory or explain it uh, too poorly, so I'm going to let you do it. Um, so just give us a little bit of an overview of, of what this theory was and kind of how you came up with it. Yeah, definitely. I think maybe it's um, best described as like an untested, untested hypothesis. Um, so the, the genesis of it is I listened to a podcast featuring Dr. Anja Shortland um, that was about the economic mechanisms um, and incentive mechanisms in the physical ransom market, particularly things like kidnapping, but also things like ship hijacking. And she talked about how there's almost this kind of efficient and healthy market where the insurance companies um, actually uh, almost treat attackers like business associates um, because of this concept called the shadow of the future, which basically says that if you have this notion in your mind that you're going to interact with someone in the future, you're probably going to be on better behavior because you want them to be more cooperative and have a better um, kind of experience going forward. And so what she highlighted is that um, even, um, you know, kind of criminal groups like Somali pirates won't re-hijack ships that they've hijacked in the past and gotten payments, uh, ransom payments for in the past, um, mm -hmm. specifically because they have the shadow of the future. There's kind of this, um, acknowledgement that Somali pirates will, uh, I guess, honor their end of the deal as long as they get the money. Um, so what I was thinking is, okay, how can we extrapolate this to the ransomware market, which I would argue is kind of messy and inefficient today. Um, the, some of the sites, uh, stats that I cite in the blog post include the fact that uh, data recovery rates from ransomware can be as low as like 66%, which is pretty bad. And so I guess my provocative take is, wouldn't it be better if we actually optimized for the highest data recovery rate possible? Um, and perhaps insurance companies, just like in the physical ransom market, could help facilitate that. I think by far the spiciest take um, in the piece is the fact that I think there is a non-zero level of attacker activity that could actually represent a healthy level. For example, we could say that if the only attackers that are viable in the market are those who can, um, you know, discover and weaponize ODE, then maybe we would have almost a better level of professionalism in the market. Um, that would mean mm -hmm. that we have attackers who reliably can um, ensure that our data is decrypted and that, you know, they kind of make similar to the Somali pirates, they make good on their end of the, the transaction, so to speak. So in other words, like if we have, you know, these professional uh, for lack of a better term, ransomware gangs that have high-level capabilities at their disposal and are going after targets that they either know or might suspect would have cyber insurance, some kind of ransomware insurance, um, the equivalent of like a physical kidnap and ransom, you know, negotiator that'll that'll pay their ransom or deal with the attackers um, on their behalf, then that would kind of maybe not force out, but um, eclipse 
the low-level, disorganized, ragtag attackers that are going after individual targets. Exactly. If you make it more, more lucrative for these attackers to go after targets that do have cyber insurance, um, you're ensuring that then the insurance companies can obviously negotiate. Um, but also, in theory, you're helping deter activity from the lower end of the market where it's the companies that don't even have insurance, probably don't have backups either that are getting hit. Um, so in some ways, you're, you're reorienting the attacks towards people who can withstand it better. And then the theory, again, if you are reorienting them towards um, companies that do have this negotiator in place, um, and if that negotiator, for example, an insurance company, um, is uh, present across multiple targets, then the attackers would then be incentivized to ensure that they facilitate proper data recovery and ultimately, once they get the payment, reduce the um, overall impact of the attack um, because they want to be able to transact with that negotiator in the future. And um, you would have to have some sort of almost like a signaling mechanism and somewhat prominent display by the insurance companies that if it's a low recovery rate, then you don't get as much money. You could do something like a bonus, like you, you know, it's similar in the movies, like you give half now and then half once you see total data recovery. That involves obviously trust on both sides, but if you have these kind of continual transactions, you can begin establishing that trust. Yeah, when I when I first read your piece, it, it the, the thing that immediately came to mind was a lot of these movies that, you know, you'll see the something like Man on Fire or any of these like drug trafficking movies where somebody's daughter gets kidnapped and then mm -hmm. they hire this K&R, you know, it's like Russell Crowe or somebody down there, you know, um, down there like negotiating. And they, as you said, they have like these pre-established relationships with like the kidnapping gangs in these countries. And, you know, in the movie, you're like, okay, that sure. I'm sure that happens. Like, <laughs> It, that's not really how it works, but it probably is because it's probably a small group of people on both sides that are that are dealing with these things, both the uh, the kidnapping gangs and the K and R, you know, negotiators. It's probably a small world, so they almost have to work with each other. It certainly seemed that way from the Econ Talk episode where um, Dr. Shortland talked about it. And like you, I had only really seen it in, you know, Taken and other <laughs> movies like that. Yeah, exactly. It was definitely interesting to me. And it um, that's why I, I wanted to ultimately share it because it's, it's certainly a different way of thinking about it. And as I say in the blog post, it can almost feel icky, like that the attackers are winning or the kidnappers are winning. But ultimately what matters is making sure, you know, in the kidnapping case, the victim doesn't lose any fingers. And in the ransomware case, that the data is actually recovered. So the data recovery rates, I wonder how much do you think that varies? Um, I don't, we probably don't get stats from, you know, individual victims, you know, somebody, just an individual consumer who's hit because they, they wouldn't have a mechanism to report that like, hey, I didn't get my stuff back. But I wonder how much that varies from, you know, enterprises to the individual, like an individual victim like me or you who might get hit. Do you have any idea? I don't. Unfortunately, as I was compiling the post, which I've admittedly done over the past few months, just because I have an insane blog backlog, um, the data the data is unfortunately pretty scant. Um, there are only yeah. a few vendors really publicizing it. My guess is some of the government agencies probably have better data around this, just because they're um, you know they have more incidents reported. So I did the best with the data I have. If anyone listens and they have this kind of data, please send it my way because I find it super interesting. Yeah, I do too. And the other thing that I find really interesting 
is this small little cottage industry of you know the the cyber insurance and that existed before ransomware existed like it it wasn't huge but it, i think it's gotten bigger since ransomware really took off because it's just a a clear lane for them to jump into and there's also these groups you know there's there's uh, law firms that do this and other like individual firms that like essentially escrow cryptocurrency for organiz- for companies that think they might get hit by ransomware attacks or you know have some exposure to that which is kind of a fascinating thing that's cropped up just as ransomware has really taken off. Yeah, it is. It is quite fascinating. I always think that it's one of those, um, if you, if you abstract it away, I think it becomes a very cyberpunk notion that we take a little bit for granted. Um, but I think ransomware is one of, I think the, the top of mind threats for most people today, just because it's immediately obvious and damaging. It's not something that kind of sneaks in silently and, you know, exfiltrates intellectual property that may doom your market prospects in three years. It's something that just is immediately ravaging to your organization. And so I think it's, you know, it's something that I, I think is almost very emotional in quality. It feels in a way, I think, very violating, which I, I think is why so much attention has been focused on it. Yeah. And also there's that mentality, I think, among people on the, on the defensive side of the ball where, you know, you don't want to you don't want to admit any law. You don't want to take any else. You know, you, you yeah. know that you are going to, you know, there's going to be intrusions into your network, whether you're a corporate defender, government, whatever it happens to be, there's going to be intrusions, but um, you don't want to, I think that mentality, they, they don't want to look at it and say, okay, we have to accept that there's pros out there that are going to beat us at some point. So let's prepare for that. But you almost have to in, in today's environment, I would think, don't you? I think you absolutely have to. And I think it, it kind of um, ignores or dismisses, you know, literal eons of uh, military <laughs> strategy um, to not have that sort of plan B in mind. Um, it's something that I think is um, perhaps the first and foundational assumption that security programs should have, which is that failures will happen. And instead of trying to prevent them from happening, we just need to be prepared to gracefully handle them when they do happen. Um, so it does, I, I will say, and I, I fully published this thinking that a lot of people would be mad at me for even suggesting, you know, the idea of a healthy equilibrium of attackers. But I think, I really think that we would all be better off if we had, you know, very sophisticated and competent attackers, you know, not just script kiddies that got lucky on Shodan, right, using Metasploit. Um, I think there is a certain level of, okay, if you have, you know, a, a a level of professionalism on the other side, then probably people are going to be better off. But you're right. It, it doesn't feel good. Like, I think it's very much the just world hypothesis. We want to feel like the get, like the good guys will win and they'll prevail, but that's just totally unrealistic. So we need to, I think we need to be more pragmatic in our strategies. Yeah. That doesn't even always work in the movies, you know, no, definitely <laughs> a not. lot of times it doesn't work in the movies. And it, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, if you talk to somebody that's, say a high level poker player or a high level chess player, they'd much rather play against another high level opponent than someone who doesn't necessarily understand all the intricacies of strategy and game theory and that kind of stuff and might get lucky. Like you mentioned, like they don't want to play against some doofus that might just, you know, get <laughs> lucky and play the wrong cards and win. You know Exactly. So where do you, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Kelly. No, I was saying that was a great analogy. Yeah, it's just, 
you want your opponents, you want to, I guess, have some understanding of how they're going to approach things. If you're on the defense or, or if you're on the offensive side of the fence, you want to know how the other side might be playing the game, I would think. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of like Obi-Wan Kenobi in the, the prequels that says so uncivilized about blaster guns. You know, you want someone who respects, you know, the the beauty of the lightsaber, right? <laughs> Perfect. Since we're recording this a few days before the next Star Wars movie comes out, it's good. Definitely. So have you, I know you've spent plenty of time looking at or talking to Enterprise Defenders, so do I, all the time. Um, how do you think this uh, idea of yours, and it, it's not, I mean, there's other versions of it as well, um, is going to play out if, you know, if somebody's sitting at lunch reading reading your post and shows it to some of their friends on the security team, what do you think the overall reaction would be? I'm sure you had an idea when you wrote it. but Yeah, I, I pretty much assumed it would be one of two things, which is one, like, huh, this is interesting. I have no idea how this is going to work, which is totally fair. Um, two some sort of expletive and this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. We can't let the bad guys win. You know, the, the um, meme someone posted in my Twitter stream about it, you know, every time that you pay the ransom, you help terrorists, that sort of mentality. So I, I certainly uh, yeah, didn't sure. think anyone would um, be, uh, I guess, be bored by it <laughs> or not have an opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, I certainly don't think this is definitely something that's supposed to be provocative. Like I said, it's an untested hypothesis, but I think the problem I see in general in information security is that we don't really test our foundational assumptions enough. And I think we don't necessarily try to reimagine um, the way that we look at certain problems. So really the goal of the post is to say, okay, let's start treating this more like an actual market. Let's look to this existing domain, which has had some success in making sure that people don't lose their fingers or other appendages when they're kidnapped. And let's try to think about, are we approaching ransomware the right way? Or do we need some sort of intervention through this kind of negotiator mediating party that could help improve the outcomes for the victims? Do you see any parallels, Kelly, with the way that, say, the um, vulnerability disclosure and bug bounty markets have evolved with, you know, um, third-party platforms for researchers and and um, vendors to kind of negotiate? It's not the right word there, but interact, I guess. I mean, now that you say it, I think it would be amusing to show, you know, leaderboards for the most responsible attacker or something like that, um, you know, just before you really pay the ransom, like, you know, do they have five gold stars next to their, um, you know, uh, APT name? Um, I, I think, I certainly think it's an interesting concept. I didn't think beyond really the cyber insurance um, companies as playing that negotiator, but I think potentially there could be third parties. I would be probably depressed if I saw a venture capitalist funding it, because I'm not sure if that's that creates its own probably incentive mechanisms, because then they have an incentive to ensure growth in the market, which technically would be growth in the ransomware market, which is not at all what I'm trying to advocate. Uh, so I think it could get messy fast. And the reason why I think cyber insurance is such a good um, party here, not just because you already see it in the physical ransom domain, but also the incentives are a little more in line. They don't want to have to pay out that much, um, but they are willing to if it means that there is better data recovery for their clients who are paying the money. They don't really, I mean, you can argue that they do benefit by a growth of threats or whatever else because there's a higher demand for cyber insurance. But in general, they don't want all of their clients getting ransomed all the time because that means that their payouts are increasing. 
So really like their goal, as I mentioned, the post is like their goal is to set expectations on the attacker for the attacker to really think that they've, think as Dr. Shortland puts it, squeeze the most out of the towel they can get um, because they want to minimize how much they're paying out. But again, they also have a pretty strong incentive to ensure that those data recovery rates are high, which is why I think they're a pretty perfect negotiator. Um, and like I said, my concern would be that a, a different sort of third party doesn't have quite that same incentive structure. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the same way that, say, an auto insurance company or you know a flood insurance provider looks at it. They the, the problem exists and they need that problem there for their business to exist and they need their potential customers to realize that this problem exists in order for them to pay them money. Exactly. I don't think car company or uh, automotive insurance companies, you know, were eager to create faultier cars just to increase, you know, car accident rate. Like I don't think anyone, I mean, that's certainly right. a spicy take, but I think it's a wrong take. Um <laughs> So I think it would be similar in cyber insurance for the most part. And I think some people or at least one person responded to the post um, saying, you know, oh, well, we need to first and foremost have the cyber insurance companies demand backups. Like, yes, absolutely. I think everybody knows backups sure. are the best defense. But the realistic take, though, is that deployments won't be perfect. Like things can go wrong. Um, there are instances of ransomware that do specifically look for backup services and try to shut those off first. Like there, you need some sort of plan B to me. It's just irresponsible to assume that everything will go flawlessly. Yeah. I mean, if you've ever been in a car accident and had to take your car in for body work, I mean, that doesn't go flawlessly right. either. You know, half the time they can't, <laughs> they're just like, Oh, you know, we couldn't find that part. So we got you this one. It's a different color. Like, all right, great. Um, but the backup thing to me is kind of crazy because especially I see it sometimes in like these smaller municipalities, you know, towns and county governments that get hit and you'll see it in their public statements are like, we're, we're confident that we can restore like 40% or 60% of our services. And I always wonder if that means, did they not have full backups or some of those got corrupted? Or like you said, the, the ransomware went after those specifically. I think it depends on company to company. And again, unfortunately, most of the details that come out of these instances um, aren't uh, aren't released publicly, though I'm sure they're discussed privately, particularly among like incident response teams. You know, maybe some of the incident response companies will eventually come out with stats and a report or something. But um, yeah. my my impression is certainly, like you said, like the implementations of backups aren't perfect. They're targeted towards some systems and not others. I think also there's just an inherent level of, um, I guess, when you have these complex systems, it's difficult to uncover what nodes may seem unimportant, but are kind of critically connected to other nodes, basically the notion of systemic risk, right? Like there's some nodes that aren't directly associated with, you know, powering, I don't know, stoplights in a town or something like that. Um, but they still mm -hmm. support operations. You know, maybe they do the um, heartbeat or health check on those operations. Like they're still necessary in order to get everything up and running. So maybe you didn't think to back those up. So I think a lot of it is just it's, you know, there aren't infinite budgets. There is an infinite time. I think we could have a separate episode just on like good backup practices and the challenges within okay. those, right? It's it's much harder than I think a lot of people suggest, though, Things like obviously go, moving to cloud-based systems can help, yada, yada. But I think the, the point is really it's 
difficult, particularly for local governments that are heavily budget constrained to properly cover all the backups that they need and even know what they should be backing up um, rather than, you know, the advice telling them like backup everything is probably not going to fly. They're not going to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, as you said, the budget constraints are very real in those, in those environments, you know, they don't have, you can't just go borrow more money. It doesn't work that way for them. Um, So where do you think we are kind of on the development curve of these ransomware operations, Kelly? I mean, they, ransomware kind of started out as like an opportunistic way for, you know, cybercrime groups and individual actors to make some side money. Um, but now it's, it's certainly evolving into a much more organized professional, if you want to use that word, um, attacks in a lot of, a lot of instances where, you know, groups are going after specific targets. They know exactly what they're doing and they're not, you know, necessarily targets of opportunity. Do you think we're just sort of inevitably moving towards a more professional, uh, professionalization of these kind of attacks? No, I, I almost think if anything, the trend right now is it's probably just going to get messier. I always assume that once you have kind of this established um, sort of attack type that it will, um, I guess it's it's almost like a, a weird form of trickle down economics, if you want to think about it that way, like it becomes easier, mm. like modules become available, like kind of these cut and paste things come a, become available for people to use on their own rather than before you had more sophisticated organizations building their own. Um, I don't think it's necessarily yeah. inevitable that um, sophistication of ransomware operations will increase. I do think that if we move to a paradigm where, for example, everyone's using like immutable infrastructure, so it doesn't really matter if it gets ransomware. It, like, obviously, it gets bad if like your Docker image registry gets ransomware or something like that. Though I haven't even heard of anything close to that. Um, but I think once you start moving to things like immutable infrastructure, once you actually start having reliable backups and distributed backups, then you would start to see more sophistication. I think my point is that we've known about backups as a solution for a while, and that isn't, it's clearly not enough of an incentive mechanism to start encouraging that better behavior. So we should look to other incentive mechanisms to help with that. Um, that's kind of the crux of the post. I'm not the most familiar on kind of like the latest and greatest techniques with ransomware. The main thing I've heard, as I mentioned before, is that they are starting to it's similar to how traditional malware would look. And I think most ransomware looks for things like endpoint detection response tools, you know, antivirus processes, things like that. They're starting now to look for the common backup solutions um, to kill those processes before they execute. Um, So I think that's, I guess, the next wave of it. Um, But probably someone else, um, you know, some sort of malware analyst is looking at these day in and day out and would have a better answer there. Yeah, there. I mean, there's lots of, unfortunately, there's lots of other avenues for ransomware still to kind of go down. I mean, I, I think a lot of people worry about it getting into, you know, ICS or other types of systems like that, uh, control systems, things like that. I've, I've heard of one or two of those uh, and kind of anecdotal examples, but, you know, a large scale attack on something like that would be very worrying. Yeah, and I would definitely um, say that yeah, that would... And- ever more heighten the need for sophisticated attackers because the last thing you want is some, you know, 13-year-old kid somewhere else around the world that barely knows what they're doing and copy and pasted this thing that just shut off like a power grid. Like that's 
it's just not comforting. But if it's, you know, a well-resourced, you know, criminal group that is like the Grek puts it has uh, have bosses and budgets and stuff. It's like, okay, like we have some professionals here, probably things will end up okay. Rather than the 13 year old being like, psych, I don't actually know how to like decrypt your data or whatever else. Right. (laughs) Yes. Just watching my teenagers try and like restart the Xbox. I'm very worried. Yeah, It definitely doesn't sound good though. It sounds like great uh, science fiction, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it, it could be a good episode of like Silicon Definitely. Valley or something like that. All right, Kelly, thanks so much. This is really, I really appreciate you doing this and I really love the post. I encourage everybody to go read it and I'll, I'll be sure to drop the link in the, in the show notes so everybody can, uh, can get to it if they, if they. Awesome. Yeah. Thank already. you so much, Dennis. You bet. Talk to you soon.